podcast, Wayne Bruce talks to Tracy Burton, the Executive Director of Uniting New South Wales and ACT. Hi Tracy, thanks for your time today. We've been fortunate enough to know each other for a long time. Perhaps I'd like to start by asking, you studied nursing, what was your first job out of university and how did that shape your career? It's really interesting that you say I studied nursing because a lot of people assume that that is my background, but it's actually not. So I did sort of grow up in hospitals. I did a Bachelor of Health Administration straight from school and went into a management training program. So basically I had the privilege of working in the corridors of, of hospitals for you know over 30 years. So a lot of people do assume that I have a nursing background. A lot of people uh, sort of assume that, but I'm actually um, pretty hopeless when it, when it comes to dealing with uh, issues. But I was really lucky early on to have a mentor who pushed me to make sure that you know I got into theatre scrubs and went into theatre and really understood you know the environment in which I ultimately became a leader but at the time you know I think the management training program was wonderful because there's very few opportunities in your career where you get to change roles every three or six months without losing your credibility and it also provided the opportunity to as I was moving locations as well as different parts of hospitals and even into New South Wales Health back at the time in a regional office so it allowed me to build a reputation very very quickly as well. That was with the Australian College of Health Service Management right. and New South Wales Health ran a, ran a graduate training program and they still do. In fact, it's 45 years. It's just celebrating 45 years this year. So very proudly a graduate of that. So you mentioned a, a mentor. I mean, what or who have been the biggest influences on your career? Well, I think often when I reflect on my career, I do reflect on being lucky, you know, lucky that I've had opportunities put in front of me and then lucky that I had mentors or people who said, you know, where I might have been hesitant and said, oh, no, I, I couldn't do that. I haven't done that before. I've had people push me and so say, yep, give it a go. Um, I've been really lucky to have the family support that I have. So I have a husband and two boys and, you know, they've supported me to go and do a stint in Queensland for nearly five years, uh, to do uh, a stint in Victoria um, for, for seven years. So, you know, that, that ability to move to where the opportunities are, I think is also um, has been, you know, very, very lucky for me as well that I was able to do that because not everybody can. It's interesting, but I think more and more people now do that commute, particularly the East Coast where the flights don't take that long. Yeah, the commute thing I think is doable. I, I did the, the last role I had where my office was in Melbourne, but the hospitals I was associated with were across both states of New South Wales, so I, my family home was still in Sydney. So the commute was doable, uh, but ultimately it takes a bit of a toll. You know, it, it is just the equivalent of a bus ride. It's very short, but it is still that, that sort of... You end up with very long weeks, I think, when you're away and you're sort of coming home for the weekend, you, you end up sort of working yourself into the ground if you're not really careful. At Uniting Care here, and certainly in past roles as well, if it's relevant, but how do you and your team sort of work, the executive team work, to keep your employees motivated? Well, at Uniting, what we say is that our people are at the heart of everything that we do. So we have, you know, over 500 buildings scattered all over the state. We're, we're, we're a very large provider of aged and community services in a whole range of venues, as I said, literally across the state of New South Wales and into ACT. So having our people at the heart is, is really important. And I suppose how we motivate them is by trying to create the culture in which they're swimming around in doing their work is a culture that embraces diversity, a culture that values what they do, uh, a culture that really tries to help them to grow, uh, not just have 10 years experience with Uniting where you do one year, 10 years over, but rather 
that opportunity to grow. And that can be that can be quite difficult. You know, in our aged care services, for example, there's not a lot of uh, career opportunities. But if we find someone who might start with us as a personal care worker and have a, uh, a journey or an ambition of actually having a journey uh, through the ranks, perhaps into registered nurse ultimately, those sorts of things are something that we really try hard to support as well. But I think the motivation, a lot of it at Uniting comes from within. So our values include compassion and, and respect and people are, are drawn, I think, to coming to an environment where they can be caring for others. So there's a lot of intrinsic motivation at play as well. And then I think the other final thing I'd say would be about recognition. So we have a lovely program running at the moment, which is called our Excellence Awards, where for several months, people are able to nominate a peer or a boss or a colleague or a volunteer. And when we have the celebrations where we call out this nomination process and we um, sort of pick the top winners, which is very difficult because last year we had over 900 nominations, but we go around to the different regions and actually celebrate that. So the recognition piece, I think you just can't do enough of it in any form. When I last met with you, I recall it was in uh, late January, so it was just pre-COVID. And while we were having a coffee, you mentioned various things that were digital were becoming more prevalent and useful in aged care as well as other sectors. I just wonder whether COVID has accelerated any of that for you? Yeah, absolutely. Somebody said to me, they, they showed me a clever cartoon that said, who's driving the digital transformation in your organisation? The CEO, the CIO or COVID-19? And COVID-19 absolutely has driven our adoption of particularly um, that we use Teams so or, or Zoom, but that ability to just you know call up our 70 service managers and have a conversation with them because we're about to change the policy on visitation or we're about to update them or we just want to touch base with them because they have been doing the hardest job in Australia, if you ask me, those service managers who are leading our aged care services so difficult through COVID. So the fact that we can use this technology, even though we're disconnected physically, the ability to actually just very uh, quickly, uh, efficiently engage with people has been fantastic. But of course, there's other pieces of technology that we're looking at, which are more around um, supporting our clients and putting more control into the, the hands of our clients, those sorts of things as well. But there's no question that COVID has forced an escalation of reform that we were, we were hoping for, but um, you know, in ways way beyond our expectations in 2020. The Royal Commission, it's sort of interim report is out and it's due to come out, I think, in February. Um, I think most people don't know that the recommendations will necessarily change greatly. I just wondered what your thoughts are about the, the commission, what the interim findings are and you know what will be the impact on the sector moving forward. Hopefully the impact of the Royal Commission will be really significant. I think COVID-19 has done um, has done the job of raising the awareness within the general community of Australia that the aged care system is not working. So it's shone a light on that and it's raised people's concern. And I think in the past when reviews have been done, there's been a sort of a fleeting acknowledgement of that, but there's not been the, the determination to see it through and make real change. I think now that we've got a Royal Commission that's uh, going to make recommendations about really significant reform, Hopefully there will be an appetite to act on that and that the community will sort of keep the pressure on us all to, to, to stay on that. Because it's going to be hard work, there's a lot of reform to be done, but we need to take 
the system from where it is today to where it needs to be in order for older people to get the support that they deserve, wherever they deserve, in their home, in one of our homes, um, so that they can live a meaningful life. So at the moment, the sector really is, is struggling to do that. So what, what do you hope to see come out of the Royal Commission in terms of tangible changes? Well, I think I hope to see an abundance of, of changes. You know, the the uh, the focus on to home care, so that people can be supported to stay in their home. Um, the focus on being able to pay our staff more, train our staff more, have more staff available, so that people get more engagement and more care in the residential setting. I hope that you know, the transparency and accountability mechanisms are put in place so that people can have more confidence. Clearly we've, the, we've, we've lost, there's been a loss of confidence, so we're very committed to uh, transparency. And for all of the wonderful sort of new vision that the Royal Commission is, is painting a picture of, there is a reality that we're going to have to pay for it. At the moment we're spending 1% of GDP, 1.1% of GDP on aged care. And in countries like Denmark and Sweden where they're proud of their aged care system, they are spending at least three times that. So unfortunately, what we want won't come without cost. So what we need is for Australians who can afford to pay, we need them to recognise that it's worth paying for, for aged care. We can't let it all fall to the taxpayer, or unfortunately, it will continue to be rationed and be a substandard service. What we need is for the government and the taxpayer to be making sure that no one slips through the cracks, that people who don't have means um, you know, have got access to good care. But for those of us who, you know, have have means, we, we're going to have to spend some of it as, as we age. We can't just leave it all to our kids if we're going to have the system that we all hope for and can be proud of in Australia. I was speaking to someone earlier this week who runs a moderately large not-for-profit aged and community care group in Queensland. And they were telling me that, in fact, they're looking at divesting their actual bricks-and-mortar residential aged care assets in, into another group. And they're going to focus on in-home aged care, which is what you just mentioned. So how do you see that in terms of being a much bigger part of the future? I think home care is going to be a much bigger part of the future because that's what older Australians want. So we've got to try and make that happen. There'll always be the need for um, a, a sort of a congregate living setting. So, you know, particularly in that area of, of dementia and even caring for people who are incredibly frail or towards end of life, it's very, very difficult um, and expensive. So will Australians be willing to spend that much money to make 24-7 support for someone um, in that sort of a, a acutely frail stage? Not sure. So I'm sure there'll still be a, a role for aged care facilities. And then there's the opportunity of retirement living as well, which is almost the sort of the midway. So by having older people uh, living together independently um, in aged care, in, in retirement villages, for example, the ability for home care to come in and support them is it's much more efficient if they are all within a, you know, a few doors of each other rather than you know streets or suburbs away from each other. That all comes at a cost as well. So um, yeah, I think there's, and, and we're very ambitious about having uh, a continuum of support for older people um, at Uniting. So we, we already provide home care, we provide residential and we do retirement living and we're looking to see how can we actually, you know, make sure that that's a really seamless and cost-effective um, response to what older people need. Diversity inclusion is obviously an increasingly important issue. You mentioned it before with your staff. How have you seen perhaps at the board level and the executive level that that, that has been promoted and improved? 
At Uniting, we've, um, we, we, as part of the Uniting Church, we have a sort of an ambition of welcoming everyone exactly as they are. So diversity and inclusion is part of our DNA. But it doesn't just come by people wanting it to be there. You actually have to put a structured response around it. So um, just this morning, I spent several hours in uh, what we call our Diversity and Inclusion Summit. And using Zoom, we had over 200 people online really engaging with our, um, our strategy that's just been launched and endorsed by our board and indeed by the church. So it has ambitious goals and targets around training, around um, resources to support people to feel safe. And I think one of the, the lovely things that was said this morning is that difference, you know, everybody's, everybody's different. It's just in, in, in whatever way. And that difference is actually an asset because there's a richness in that diversity that you can bring to bear and, and enhance your service. Or if you're operating a business, it, it, it enhances your, your business. There's, there's statistics out there that the evidence is diversity on a board, for example, will lift performance of the organisation. So, but it's, you have to deliberately set about doing it and put goals in place and, and have action plans to make it happen. In closing, Tracy, what are your top tips for younger aspiring to have an impact in the sector and perhaps take on, you know, leadership roles. I mean, how do they position themselves and develop the skill set to to do that? Do you think? I think the number one thing is to, is to say yes. So even though you might doubt yourself and think, oh, I could have failed at that. I've never done that. How will I tackle that? Do I have time? If you can say yes to those opportunities of being involved in a project, I think that's a really important one. That's where you get to to stretch where you get a reputation of being someone who, who is willing to go above and beyond and, and, and contribute as well. I think making sure you're making time for reflective practice is really important as well. So often leaders don't realise the impact that they're having on, on others or they might just be rushing into something and if in fact they sort of stopped and thought, well, last time I met with Wayne, it, and, you know, and plan and plan it. So making time for that reflective practice. And then I think another one would be actively seeking feedback. So really making sure that people know that you genuinely are trying to learn and grow. And therefore, even though it might be you know, tough love, it might be hard feedback, you really want it because you are on an improvement and a journey. And I think the other one is that someone sort of really pushed me to do some postgraduate study when I was at a sort of particular stage of, of my career. And I was, you know, I was definitely um, in a senior position. I was busy and with kids and it was like, how on earth do I find time for it? But I was given a bit of a push to do that. And I ended up doing an MBA over, you know, several years, actually. I did it, took it as a journey rather than a destination. And um, I'm forever grateful that someone really did give me that nudge because I think it's really important to have that continued learning, formal or informal, um, as, as part of your, your, your offering and part of your, your own leadership growth.